do you think that is something that is true that humor can only um, come out of out of something sad, or do you think that is a cliche? I know that I know that, that that Wittgenstein believed that the most serious and profound problems and questions and issues could be discussed only in the form of jokes. I mean, I know um, um, in in U.S. lit there is a tradition from about um, the 50s and 60s called um, called black humor, which is a very kind of sardonic, sad type of humor. Um, I'm, I'm grasping for something interesting to say in response. I think probably sometimes it can be, and 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 sometimes it it isn't. There, there's a there's there are forms of humor that that offer escapes from pain, and there are forms of humor that that transfigure pain. Because you and, and your books. Does that make any sense? Yeah, okay. perfectly. Okay. <laughs> I mean, now the perspiration starts. Okay. <laughs> it's. Um, it would help. You know what would help me? Tell me what you think. Like, if we do yeah. this as a conversation, it will yeah. be easier for yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I wrote my master thesis about Thomas Bernhard, and um, and Thomas Bernhard, there's a theory that you know he was very had the lung sickness, so he quit all his life, and his life was very was very hard for him. And also he hated his, his, he hated Austria where he lived and he thought they were all Nazis and was all this Catholic fascism and he was just hating everything. But then out of that he developed this really kind of strange sense of humor. So his novels are very dark but at the same, same time very, for me, very witty and, and also this, this humor comes in some sort of music and all that. And, but, but, and I just wanted to know if you think that is true, that you know, the, the kind of sense of humor you like you know, comes out of bitterness and sadness. And, and, or if this is a cliché, sometimes it's also a cliché, you know, it's like this tragic comic. And the answer for myself is I don't know. I, I know, that, in a, I, I know that, the res that, that very often humor is a response to things that are difficult. In the, in the U.S., in the U.S., there's a strange situation where, in some respects, humor and and irony are are political responses and they're redemptive. And in in, in another sense, particularly in popular entertainment, irony and a kind of dark humor can become a way of um, it's a it it. It's pretending to protest when it really isn't. Someone, someone once called irony the song of a bird that has come to love its cage. And even though it sings about not liking the cage, it really likes it in there. Um, there's, there's a, it can be, so that, so that it, it can, it can be both a wake up call and, it can, and an anesthetic. And, and the difference, the, the difference in the US now is, is very tricky and very complicated, it seems to me. And what would you think is true for your books? I mean, they are, for me, they have all this, they, they are about very serious questions, and they are often very sad, but at the same time, you, you get this sense of humor in there somehow. I, um, I'm not, I'm not 
often all that aware of stuff that's really funny in the book. Um, in the American version of Infinite Jest, I, I, start, I set out to write a sad book. And um, when people liked it and told me that w the thing they liked about it was that it was so funny, it was just very surprising. It, it's the other strange thing about humor. There's, I teach... I teach school and I teach literature and some of what I teach is Kafka and there's a story about Kafka that, that in some of Kafka's most horrific stories, his neighbors would complain because he would be laughing so hard late at night as he wrote these stories. He found them very, very funny. And there are things in them that are funny, but I don't know that many people would understand laughing so hard that your neighbors would complain. So there's something, it's, it's, it's probably difficult to talk to a writer about about the humor or sadness or something in in his or her own work because because my because our sense of it tends to be very different from readers. Yeah, but um, um, there was one interview you gave. I don't uh, I forgot which which um, media it was, but you said um, when you you um, began uh, writing in your jest, you 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 wanted to write something about sadness. So sadness was was a was something that really belonged to to this project. So could you describe what you? Um, it was a while ago. Uh, the easiest way to talk about it would be that for 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 the upper middle class in the U.S. Um, particularly younger people, things are often materially very comfortable, and 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 there's often a there there's also often a great sadness and emptiness, and it's 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 difficult to think about and difficult to 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 come up with answers in the abstract, and and I think I I had started that book after a couple of people, not close friends, but people I knew. Who were my age had had committed suicide, and there, there were there was just there was just a. It, um, it just became obvious that something was going on, and 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 so and 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 I know that that impulse was part of 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 starting the book. The, the book is so long though, and took so long to write that it's almost hard to remember the impulses at the beginning because everything sort of changes. I mean, you, it's something you live with for years and years rather than something that you just have an idea or a feeling and you just do. I think one of the ideas of the book is that there's a particular, um, there's a particular ethos in U.S. culture, especially in um, entertainment and marketing culture, that very much appeals to people as individuals, that you don't have to be devoted or subservient, subservient to anything else. Um, there is no larger good than your own good and your own happiness. And that in the book, um, as best I can recall, characters who become drug, drug, ad drug addicts, there is a form that the root in English of addict is the Latin adicere, which, which means, um, uh, um, which means religious devotion. Um, It was, it was an attribute of, of beginning monks, I think. There, there's, there's an element in the book in which various people are, are living out something that I think is true, which is that we all, we all worship and we all have a religious impulse. We, we, um, we can choose to an extent what we worship, but the myth that we worship nothing and give ourselves away to nothing is simply 
simply sets us up to give ourselves away to something different. For instance, pleasure or, or, or drugs or the idea of having a lot of money and being able to buy nice stuff. Or in the tennis academy, um, it's, it's somewhat different. It's devotion to an athletic pursuit that requires a certain amount of sacrifice and discipline, but is nevertheless an individual sport. And one's trying, one is, one's trying to get ahead, or, or drugs, or the idea of having a lot of money and being able to buy nice stuff. Or in the tennis academy, um, it's, it's somewhat different. It's devotion to an athletic pursuit that requires a certain amount of sacrifice and discipline, but is nevertheless an individual sport. And one is trying, one is, one is trying to get ahead as an individual. I, I, I doubt this makes very much sense, but um, whatever, whatever the conditions of hopelessness you're talking about, at least, at least in, uh, at least in, in Infinite Jest, have to do, I think, with, with, with an, with an American idea, and not a universal one, but one that I think kids get exposed to very early, that that you are the most important and what you want is the most important and that your job in life is to is to gratify your own desires um, it, that that's a little crude to say it that way but in but in but in fact it's it's something of the I ideology here um, and uh, it's it's certainly the ideology that's perpetrated by uh, television and advertising and entertainment and the economy thrives on it and what, what happens when, when this ideology becomes over there? Oh, there my, oh, problem. God, sorry. Right. Shit, I was halfway lucid for a second there, too. And it probably didn't come through? No, it was fine. I was feeling lucid. I promise it was mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, I went out for just yeah. the last question, but, uh, but it's kind of hard because you lose in and out. Yeah, okay. okay. So I move in and out? Oh, yeah. You know, the thing is, the background is not too pretty, of course, and that's why we're not trying. I'm sorry. No, 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 no that's, that's, that's okay. No, because you're, you're pontificating. Oh, yeah, thank you. You have to. There's a nice word. Deep. Thank spiritual you. way, uh -huh. okay, which is completely screwing me. Okay, that's a dumb king. So you are. You, you're just. You're, I can tell you're very twitchy. I'm sorry. You're very reflective. Well, these are hard questions. Oh, yeah. Particularly when it's about something you did like seven years ago. Okay. I just shoot the pictures. Yeah. I would trade places with you at this point. <laughs> Anytime. What do you think um, does this ideology um, lead through, uh, lead to when 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 children are, uh, are told from the beginning everything that counts is your own your own happiness and your own pursuit of you know of, of satisfaction? Well, of course, nobody nobody tells you. I mean, mom and dad don't sit you down and say this. This is something. This is something. Um, this is something very subtle and is delivered by by a, by a great many messages um, in, in in just a, just just conversationally. Do do you get what I'm talking about? Okay. I, I I rather doubt I, I rather doubt that Europeans' idea of America is very different from this. I mean, this is this is an enormous 
this is one enormous engine and temple of self gratification and and self ad self advancement and in some ways it works very very well in other ways it doesn't it doesn't work all that well because it the it, it, at least for me it seems as if there are there are whole other parts of me that need to to worry about things larger <laughs> than me that don't get that don't get nourished in that system um, and do you think the Europeans know that? Um, I, I, that do, do you think from the Europeans I've talked to, yeah. I, I mean, it's when I have a when I get in arguments with Europeans, it's that their view of it is sort of exaggerated and simplistic. It's a very complicated thing, um, and and full of paradoxes and ironies and all kinds of stuff. And um, the idea. The, the, the idea that America is one great big shopping mall and that all anyone wants to do is, you know, grasp their credit card and run out and buy stuff um, uh, is a stereotype and it's a generalization. But, but, but as, as a way to summarize a certain kind of ethos in the U.S., um, it's, it's pretty accurate, particularly after the elections we just had on Tuesday. It's, um, the, the U.S. is not getting better in this area. It seems like it's getting worse. Yeah, I mean, I've been coming here get every, every year over the last couple of years, and, and it seemed for, for me, it seemed to me, to, to, as you seem to see this progress on that, this development, also people, you know, when you go to a department store, people seem more aggressive and trying to sell you stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seemed to get... On the other hand, I, I really like I like it here because I mean in Germany it's not that funny too. But yeah. It's not that what? Not not that funny all the time too. I yeah. mean it's also yeah. you know, also an intellectual crisis and everything. It's it's yeah stand still somehow. There, I mean there are certain paradoxes that go along with being a wealthy Western industrial country, and it just seems as if they're they're, they're probably somewhat common, you know. Um, we have we have our race problems. You 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 have the problems of of absorbing <laughs> East Germany and dealing and dealing with all that stuff. But yeah, I, I'll stay out of politics. It's, it's too upsetting. <laughs> um, um, when also in, in this interview, you I, I I read there was also this that you said well you wanted to to write something about a generation. I mean you didn't see, you you weren't sure if it's if you were right about this generation, but you somehow had that that feeling that um, that your generation was in that kind of kind of trouble. Well, I, my memory is one of the reasons for setting the book in the future was that um, was that I, I'm not, I'm now 40, so I was born in the early 60s, and to to an extent, I think my generation tends to think of itself as as children still and as um, and, and as people with parents and, and I remember wanting to do something about about what would be the what would be the situation of our children or kind of the next generation and, and this childlike thing is, has this also something there's uh, one story and in, in interviews with Hades men where the depressed person is, is always talking about the, the, the wounded and that child is that something that Belongs together, or is this language like that? The wounded inner child, the inner pain, is part of a uh, a kind of pop psychological movement 
in the in the United States that is a is a sort of um, popular Freudianism that, that that has its own paradox, which is that um, the the more the more we are taught to list and resent the things of which we were deprived as children, the more the more we live in that anger and frustration, and the more we remain children. I mean, that, that's a very simple way of putting it, but the, the, I think the character in that story is sort of a, a compendium of kind of all the, all, the, all the worst and most painful features of, 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 of the popular psychology movement in the U.S., and I don't know whether there's any, any analog to that in Western Europe or not. Yeah, I think there is, actually. Um, and when you said um, that, I mean, um, I find that too in Europe that there's this reluctance to 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 really be growing up and to to live life on life's terms. So, uh, I mean, what should this generation, which is not able to 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 grow up, do about it? Let me insert one thing, which which I'll bet you've noticed from talking to writers, is that is that. Um, most of the most of the stuff that we think we're writing about in books is very difficult to talk about straight out, you know, question and answer. And and and, and in some sense, um, in some sense, it probably can't be talked about directly, and that's why people make up stories about it. This is all a big defense because I feel like what I'm saying is so simple and so um, re reductive. To to the extent that I to the extent that I understand it. Being, being what you call grown up isn't a lot of fun a lot of the time. There are things you have to, there are things you have to do. There are things you want to do that you can't do for a variety of reasons. And, and I think, um, I, I, I think there, for young people in America, there are very mixed messages from the culture. Um, that there's a streak of there's a streak of moralism in American life that that extols the virtues of being grown up and having a family and being a responsible citizen, but there's also the sense of um, do what you want, gratify your appetites because of, uh, um, when I'm a corporation appealing to the parts of you that are selfish and self-centered and want to have fun all the time is the best way to sell you things, right? Um, so. Um, and, and the point that emerges from that is that it's, I think, one more example of um, the, American, the Amer American economic and cultural systems that work very well um, in terms of in terms of selling people products and keeping the economy thriving do not work as well when it comes to educating children or helping helping us help each other know how to live and, and be and 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 to be happy if that word means anything Clearly, it means something different from whatever I want to do. I want to take this cup and throw it right now. I have every right to. I should. You know. I mean, that we've seen it. We see it with children. That's not happiness. There, that feeling of having to obey every impulse and gratify every desire is. It seems to me to be a strange kind of slavery. No, nobody talks about it as such, though. It talks about you know, freedom of choice and you have the right to have things and. 
you know, spend this much money and you can have this stuff. Again, saying it this way, it sounds to me very crude and very simple, but that's, that's sort of the way. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but, um, I mean, once you, in your... I, does, this make, do, do, does this make any sense to you? Absolutely, I mean, okay. and, and I'm not lying or something, I, yeah. I will tell you. But I mean, but what it, do you, you've, you've, you've spent time in the U.S., is this yeah. some... Yeah, it's, it's, but I think it's not only a problem in the U.S. because everything you know that happens here somehow is is copied by you know by people in Germany and there it's always it's also this this impulse that you only have to do what makes you happy and forget 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 about all the others and you don't want it to be with boring people with people who need you and that's not attractive and all that so it's you know it's this more or less the same thing, so it makes sense to me, of course. And it works very well as a system for running an economy and keeping goods produced and sold, and it, it works wonderfully. There, the ways in which it doesn't work are much more difficult to talk about. So what would, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you said it's, it's, it's but when, uh, talking of, uh, speaking of that, where doesn't it, where doesn't it work? Once reduced to talking, I think about general terms like, like, like being, like being grown up, or, or, um, a, t a term that's rarely used here in, anymore. And see, and now I feel embarrassment because I'm going to sound like some, like my grandfather or something. But the word citizen, the idea of being a citizen, it would be, to to, to understand your country's history, and the things about it that are good and not so good and how the system works and taking the trouble to learn about candidates for political office which means often reading stuff which isn't it isn't fun sometimes it's boring <laughs> but but it, when people don't do that here's what happens um, the candidates win who have the most money to buy television advertisements because television advertisements are almost voters know about the candidates. Therefore, we get candidates who are beholden to large donors and become, in some ways, corrupt, which disgusts the voters and makes the voters even less interested in politics, less willing to read and do the work and uh, do the work of citizenship. When I was a little, I'm sorry. When I was a little boy, um, there were there was a class called citizenship, and um, here here are certain things about here are certain things about America and, and America's history. Here's why it's important to vote. Here's why it's important not just to go in and vote for who the best looking candidate is. Um, here's what's really interesting, and I don't know if you can translate this. Talking about this now, I feel ashamed, because my saying all this sounds to me like an older person saying this, like a person lecturing, which in American culture sets me up to be ridiculed. It would be very easy to make fun of what I'm saying. You know, it would be very, very easy to make fun of what I'm saying, and I can hear in my head a voice making fun of this stuff as I'm saying it. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of paradox, I think, of, of what it is of, of what it is to be a halfway intelligent American right now, and probably also a Western European, is that there, there are things we know are right and good and would be better for us to do, but constantly it's like, yeah, but, you know, it's so much funnier and nicer to go do something else, and who cares, and it's all bullshit anyway. And, sorry. No, but it's the same dilemma actually in, in, in Germany with people wanting to say something and knowing at the same time it's going, it is this, this intellectual stereotype and, but, 
on the other hand, um, you can't forget about it. I mean, and um, so and one of one of the things it causes is is tension and unhappiness in people. It, I, don't, I don't think it's very complicated, and I don't think I've named the only reason for it. The paradox is that that sort of tension, tension and, and complication and conflict in people also makes them very easy to market to. Because I can say to you, um, feeling uneasy? Life feels empty? Well, here's, here's, you know, here's something you can buy or something you can go do. It makes us, um, it, it makes for, uh, the economics term is inelasticity of demand. I, I demand all the time, no matter what the price of it is. And it, it works really well in, in an economic way. Um, emotionally, spiritually, in terms, of, in terms of citizenship, in terms of feeling like a meaningful part even of this country, forget the world. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure the U.S. government's sort of uh, arrogance and disdain for the rest of the world is unpleasant. But it's also a natural extension of of certain cultural messages we send ourselves about ourselves that work very well in some ways and make us very rich and very powerful. It's all complicated. So, um, yeah, we are somehow addicted to having fun. And even, you know, in so-called serious literature, it's that, you know, it's, you, have, you don't want to make this effort anymore. Books who are serious also have to be very entertaining. And, you don't want to be bored, and and that's that's. I mean, I think 20, 30 years ago, you could also you could still read a book, and it would be this kind of work to do, but um, you, you wouldn't think, well, I have to be entertained all the time, and and so how do we, do we get uh, out of this dilemma when everything, even for intellectuals, has to be entertaining and, and not boring? And I don't I don't know the. Um I don't know that I'd agree with the last part of what you said. There's a real split. It's interesting that you went and interviewed Crichton because um, there's a real split in U.S. literature between um, between commercial literature, novels like that Crichton writes, Stephen King, Tom Clancy, um, who are the who are the other big Grisham, the, the law guy, um, some of which some of which are really pretty good, but they're they're um, and, 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 and they make a great deal of money and there's a whole lot of demand for them. And then there is still, and I, I think it's probably like this in, in, well, it's probably not quite, there's probably more demand for serious books in, in Europe. But, uh, but here there's a small pocket of probably, um, I don't know, half a million, uh, eh, say, say a million readers who, many of whom are from the upper classes and have good educations and have been taught the pleasures of hard work in reading uh, or or music or art um, and like that. Um, so, so. I mean, when when you when you're talking to me, you're talking to somebody who doesn't have very much power in in the, in the culture and who's not very important except in a, in a fairly small. I don't know what, what the the analog would be. It would be something like maybe contemporary classical music in the U.S., which there are people who enjoy it and listen to it, partly because of training and partly because they're disposed to be willing to do a certain amount more work reading it. But compared to popular music and you know, rock and roll and hip-hop and stuff, classical music is, is, is nothing. 
I mean, economically or commercially, and or in terms of how many people have heard of it, or how much how much an influence it has on the culture. So, um, and for me personally, I I don't know that it's really ever been all that different. I think probably people's. I think probably American education used to be a little bit better and a little bit more difficult, and children had no choice but to realize that there were certain things that were hard and involved a certain amount of drudgery that were actually very satisfying at the end of it. But for the most part, I think um, I think in the U.S., people have been who've been doing quote serious stuff, which is harder and stranger, have always played to a much smaller audience. Um, in terms of what what can be done about the dilemma. I um, first of all, I'm wondering who would care what I think, and and, um, and second, I'm not sure. And third, what do you think? I mean, you live in the same atmosphere well, I, I do. Yeah, I think it's it's really it's really a problem because in Germany they have this um, TV literary expert, and he's he call him the literary pope. So he's the pope of literature. And people think he has a very good niveau of everything, and he really knows when he says the book is good, the book is good. Who is this guy? <laughs> His name is uh, Marcel Reichonitzky. Maybe you heard of him. Uh -uh. And he's, he's a very funny guy, and he's maybe 80 years old or something. And he has always this very this verdict on the book, so the book is shit. Or he's part of your show? He's part no, of no, no, no. But he is just a figure in, 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 in um, German culture. And but at the same time, he always wants what he doesn't want a book to be is boring. No, by no means boring. And at the same time, he 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 really understands a lot about books, yeah. and he is really he's really a good reader. But by saying all the time, well, things are not supposed to be boring, and I mean, I think that's really a mistake, and it's getting for and taken for granted. And I feel sometimes I also have this feeling that I don't want to be bored. But at the, uh, the other, uh, on the other side, I see that it's not the option. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's not right. <laughs> I somehow, somehow have this feeling, even if it sounds stupid. No, it's, um, I mean, there's a difference, though, I think, between being mildly bored. But then there's another kind of boredom that I think you're talking about, which is um, Reading, reading requires sitting alone by yourself in a quiet room. And I have friends, intelligent friends, who don't like to read because they get, it's not just bored. There's an, uh, there's an almost dread that comes up, I think, um, here uh, about having to be alone and having to be quiet. And you see that when you walk in. When you, when you walk into most public spaces in America, it isn't quiet anymore. They pipe music through. And the music's easy to make fun of because it's usually really horrible music, but it seems significant that we don't want things to be quiet ever anymore. And and to me, I don't I don't know that I could defend it, but that seems to me to have something to do with when when you feel like your the purpose of your life is to gratify yourself and get things for yourself and go all the time, there's this other part of you that, that that's the same part that can kind of is almost hungry for silence and quiet and thinking really hard about the same thing for maybe half an hour instead of 30 seconds that doesn't get fed at all. And it, um, it, it makes itself felt in, a, in the body in a kind of dread, 
in here, and I, I, I don't know what I don't know whether that makes a whole lot of sense, but I but I think it's true that here in the U.S. every year the culture gets more and more hostile. I, and I don't mean hostile, like angry. Just in di it becomes more and more difficult to ask people to read or to look at a piece of art for an hour, or to listen to listen to a piece of music that's complicated and that takes work to understand. Because well, there are a lot of reasons, but be um, particularly now in computer and internet culture, everything is so fast, and. Uh, and the faster things go, the more we feed that part of ourselves, but don't feed the part of ourselves that likes that likes quiet, that can live in quiet, you know, that can live without any kind of stimulation. I don't know. It's an American idiom going to hell in a handbasket. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. When we're saying it, are we just saying exactly what people our age said 100 years ago? It, 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 there's no way ever to know how different we are. Yeah, things, see, thing. things seem different. Yeah, and you never get this distance to yourself to, to really know <laughs> if you're right or if it's just the cliche you're following. So, um, <laughs> now I don't know what I wanted to ask anymore. <laughs> um, so, there was some, also an episode and a brief interview with um, Hideous Man where it was also about this depressed um, person. This you like you you like talking about this story, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Is that bad? No, it's fine. <laughs> and there was something that I read that you know happens to me very often. I have a friend, and she has multiple sclerosis, and that's a very bad thing for a young woman. That's no fun. No, definitely. And she she calls me, and as soon as we pick up the the. The phone. She instantly begins to talk, you know, about her, her sickness and what she takes, and about going to the hospital. And all now, is that. this part going to make it onto the interview? Are we going to hear this part? No. No. Okay, that's what I figured. All right, keep going. <laughs> keep going. My everything I say is not going to make Fine. it anywhere. Okay. So great. Don't worry about that. Great, 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 great. <laughs> But I thought you wanted to have a conversation. So yes, I'm yes, okay. no, this is good. I'm just wishing this This is good. Well, you're going to, I mean, they can hear it, but it's not making it to the show. All right. Yeah, so so, uh, so she, she calls me, and, and at the moment I heard her name, she said, oh, I think, oh, shit, okay, okay, the next couple of, of, of hours are gone because she's telling me all that stuff. And, and on the one hand, I know she has really got to get that out, and it's somehow my duty because I like her to hear that. But on the other side, I'm so I think of my you know my free time, and I thought, well, I was just sitting here and having, and now I have to, to hear all this stuff, and afterwards, but when it's over, okay, I think well, it's good that I you know. Yep. Imagine though, if she called you up late at night and talked to you for two hours, and it was mostly apologizing for bothering you, <laughs> so that it's just one more layer of frosting, which is just something that goes along with kind of a depressive temperament. So there's a, there's a lot of narcissism and self-hatred. Yeah, but what I was thinking is what is so bad about what, what's wrong with me that I'm, you know, that, that I hear her name and I think, oh shit, again, I, that happened to me. I shouldn't have picked up the phone. And that's, you know, that's also part of the problem because and on the other hand, there's something that knows that I have to, that is something I have to do, really. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, it's not... 
Well, no. Now we're in this conversation. I'm going to be talking about your specific thing. This this doesn't get used, right? No, no, no but it's just kind of. Um, I don't think you're a bad person for. I I, I have a I have a friend who's not sick but lost her mother, sister, father to cancer all within three years, and then her best friend died of AIDS in San Francisco. This this woman had the the most terrible two or three years of anybody I've ever heard of pretty good friend of mine and I, my heart would sink every time every time I, because it it was always it was always painful and she didn't complain about it you know she was she was doing real good but it was still I like things to be pleasant I'd rather drink my chocolate milk and read a comic book than than hear about unpleasant stuff but um th this the, the 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 depressed person lady just has another has another spin on that which is that that she's so worried about that feeling you have of dread that she's calling that she's going to try to get in there and hate herself for it before you can and there's there's a great deal more narcissism in her that didn't like her very much. Yeah, I have a feeling we did. Yeah, I don't. It's it's usually really bad not to like the main character of a of a story, and I haven't done many where I didn't. But this one I didn't like, and and so it's just why I smiled. Everybody asked me about this story, and it's like the one I don't want to talk about. But it's fine. It's fine. No, no. I, I, I also found that you didn't like her, but nevertheless the story is interesting. But she didn't like herself either. So she would have predicted that I didn't like. Her. Right. <laughs> So, um, so um, do you still, I mean, do you watch TV? I don't have a TV. Because if I have a TV, I will watch it all the time. So there's my little confession about how, how strong I am at resisting stuff. I watch TV over at friends' houses and stuff sometimes. I don't watch as much as I used to. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, um, Infinite Jest, I mean, the, the entertainment is not coming from from TV directly, but it's coming from the from these. I thought they were small from these cartridges that you kind of order and get all the time. And, and but but is uh, the entertainment and infinite jest and and TV as it is in America today is it somehow similar? Or? Well, I don't know. I don't know what you mean by TV. I mean, there's network TV. And there's cable TV, and there's satellite TV, where we can get 500 channels, and then there, are, then there are movies and various things available on both tape and DVD. And so, the the phenomenon of TV, the stuff you can look at when looking at a TV, is is probably not probably not all that dissimilar. My memory in the in Infinite Jest is that there was some complicated setup where they would sometimes broadcast things and then sometimes deliver it to you on a cartridge and. You would have to let me go look at the. I don't remember very well. How yeah, it worked, no, that's right. I don't think there's there are things about the book that are not eco probably economically all that realistic. So. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's it's just um, old. I mean, um, yeah. It seemed to me that um, all the people in the book wanted to reach a similar state of mind, like something like like amnesia, the people who were ta doing drugs and people who were using the entertainment. And there was one woman um, who, who did something to herself, and she said, I didn't want to hurt me, but I, I didn't want to be hurt, any, hurt anymore. I, mm. I just wanted all this stuff with life. I just wanted it to, to stop. Is this, a similar something, is, is this a similar goal, which people want to, to reach about um, similar ways? Sort of amnesia or self-forgetting? 
Sure, I guess. I mean, um, I think part of the allure of, of, of both drugs and entertainment is, is escape, yes, from, from my problems and my life and having to be stuck in here. I can, you know, pretend I'm James Bond or pretend to, it just, um, and, and it seems fine over the short haul as a, as a way of, as a way of life. It doesn't work all that well though, no? No, but in your, in, in your book, I mean, there are a lot of people I, doing drugs and, and, and trying to, you know, not have to feel those things anymore. Yeah, well, um, stop me if I'm wrong, but because, um, because again, like I said, you know, I did this, I did this thing like seven years ago. Um, just say what you think about. No, it. I, I don't quite get the question because it seems to me like um, the parts of the book that have to do with drugs have mostly to do with this, with this halfway house, where people who've been doing drugs for ten years kind of stop and then sort of lose their minds because all of a sudden now they are starting to feel some of this stuff. Um, so, if, if you're talking about the more general allure of drugs to the extent that I understand it, which is, the ex which is about as specifically as I'm going to talk about it, um, it's, it seems to me to be, a, and this isn't a very original thing to say, it's a, it's a pretty natural extension of corporate capitalist logic, which is, I want to feel exactly the way I want to feel, which is good, for exactly this long, and so I will exchange a certain amount of cash for this substance. And, and, and I will do it, but it's all, all, of course, a lie because the control gradually goes away and it stops being that I want to do it and becomes that I feel I need to do it. And that shift from I want something to I feel I need it is, is a big one, yes? I mean, um, most of the problems in my life have to do with my confusing what I want and what I need. No, I was just having this very, uh, I have to admit, very simplistic notion <laughs> that what um, um, that we what we wanna wanna reach, what most of most people want want to reach is this the state of thoughtlessness, not having to think anymore. And I just wanted to know if there are several several ways to reach this state of mind, and if you know, watching entertainment all the time and and. and do you, are you talking about entertainment in general, or the entertainment in the book? In the book, and also, you know, when I turn the TV on here, it, it really drives me crazy. But it's because it's always I see a little piece, and then it's commercial break, and then they show me something, and then I'm supposed to watch the longer part, but I've already seen the longer part, so it's no use of doing that. So it drives me somehow mad, and yeah. this all creates this kind of state of you know, if I do it every day, seven seven hours maybe. Well, particularly if you have a remote control, see, when that happens, you go to a different channel. And if you don't like that channel, you go to a different channel. And I don't, one of the reasons I can't own a TV is I've started having this thing where I become convinced there's something really good on another channel and that I'm missing it. And so instead of watching, I'm scanning anxiously back and forth for this thing that I think I want that I don't even know what it is. And so I don't know whether German... Well, this is probably not a good thing to say on television, but I don't, I don't know whether a similar thing happens in Germany, but it's very stressful now. And what it is is too much good stuff combined with my sick little head that thinks there's always something a little better on the next thing. And all you have to do, you don't have to get up now to change it. That's, that, that was the, the problem. When it became easy, you just had to move your thumb and change it. That's when we were screwed. So.
So do you think it's... Um, 90 percent of this is going to be cut out, right? Yeah, sure. Yes, okay. <laughs> I mean, not because I like it, but because, you know, there's, of, of course... Because it's, it's not going to make any sense. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, do you think that enter entertainment, that everybody, I mean, is that entertainment something we have to fight, fight against? Like... See, it's a strange question because who would say entertainment is bad? I mean, I wouldn't say entertainment is bad. But a model of life in which, in which, in which I have a right to be entertained all the time seems to me not to be a promising one, <laughs> right? So. And this won't translate, but of course, one of the and one of the insidious things about it is that so is that entertainment is so goddamn entertaining. So like, so like, imagine if imagine this show were running on American TV, and I were sitting in this hotel watching it. Okay, we've got this pointy-headed, nerdy guy talking about this stuff, or I've got you know Pamela Anderson running on a beach, or a hilarious hilarious comedy. Which one am I going to watch? When I'm saying, you know, there's no. Um, if if fighting against entertainment is even is even required, how does one do it unless well, there are two options. One is you direct the attack only to people who are willing to listen to the complexity, but those aren't the people who are enslaved by entertainment anyway. Or you find some way to make the attack on entertainment entertaining, in which case you've been captured by the very thing you're fighting against. It's very, very strange. Yeah, that's that's exactly the dilemma. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, um, just that is different, but um, the the topic is different now. So the uh, infinite jazz takes part place uh, in a tennis academy. So and you you I read have been a tennis a tennis player, a quite quite good tennis. Player. A somewhat good tennis player, not a quite good tennis player. No, I played a lot as a as a kid. Yes. And um, and then you said once, well, tennis is a little bit like chess and like boxing. It's, it's I don't know if it's a combination of the two or if it's but you somehow related the three together: tennis, boxing, and and chess. So, what makes tennis so so special? Sorry. <laughs> well, if you're asking why why it's in the book. The reason it's in the book is it's the one sport I knew well enough to be able to try to talk about why it was beautiful. And it's also a sport that has to do with two very bounded spaces and sending stuff back and forth between them, which has other stuff to do with the book. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think tennis is a very, very beautiful sport because it's very abstract and geometrical. Um, and, and tactical like chess, and it's also very very physical. There's a lot of, there's a lot of running. <laughs> you get very tired playing. I don't know about the boxing thing unless that it's just usually one person against another person. But it's and with chess. Well, if if you're really interested, um, really good tennis players like really good chess players are always thinking four or five moves ahead. Um, actually, this was this was something that that um, um, that some of the German players who were superstars in the '90s were something very good at doing. Um, Boris Boris Becker didn't didn't just come up and and hit an ace. What Boris Becker 
and I think he'd learned this from McEnroe, was really good at hitting a forcing serve that made you hit a weak return that let him come into the net and put the next shot away. I mean, so that um, everything everything is being thought of ahead. Um, but it's also very it's also very combative. You and I are playing. If I win, you lose. I'm trying to beat you. I'm very individual. I don't feel like this is making any sense at all. It does. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry, but I have no, to no. Say it okay, fine. <laughs> well, you're you can run some sort of editing magic. <laughs> Yeah, sure, <laughs> but I don't have to. The, the, but there's also something about, it's also combat at a distance. In, in boxing, the two bodies are very close to each other. There's something a little colder about tennis, which is I am trying, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to beat you, but you're 75 feet away from me, and what's traveling between us is just this small thing. It's, there's something more abstract about it, which is a little bit more like chess. And what you also said is more mathematical, right? There was an, I think there was a, there was, a, are you talking about the essay that talks about calculus and, and, and no, tennis? Maybe I didn't understand it, but it was when, when, um, Hal no, is it Mario who talks to this, this, this guy who from, from, his name is Stig? Stig. Stig, yeah. And he, he says that. A German, as I recall. Yeah, um, but it's not a German name, actually. No, of course it isn't. What it is is what it's it like is is a vaguely, <laughs> vaguely Germanic-sounding name yeah. to Americans. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's not the subtlest character in there. I just thought of him. Um, well, the angles, the angles are are mathematical. So I don't know. I don't know what, to, um, um, what it what does is literature able to do that other? Sorry. I saw this on the sheet of paper. Yeah, because I had to. Good. That Good. So let me ask you first, and then I'll and then I'll about what 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 is it that literature can do that other things can't do? Well, it's not so easy, is it? No, no, not at all. But I thought you're you know you're more intelligent than than I am, so I thought. <laughs> um. Well, actually, this, I, I read this, this in, in this interview, and you said something is um, that good art somehow, is, um, yeah, is able to not make you feel alone in this. And that is something actually that I'm very addicted to, because you know, I'm simple as I am. I'm very, you know, I'm very happy when I don't feel this um, so lonesome when I when I read something. And I also, you know, and also when in good literature, literature is something very musical to me sometimes. That I, I had that with Bernhard very much because the sicker he he got into in his life, the you know the easier his his words his, the words became, and it was some like some kind of music. Huh. So for me, I have this the beauty of the words and also this musical thing about it, and then also sometimes there's something philosoph philosophical and not feeling alone. That's what. Why don't can we just put that in? That's a better answer to the question than, than I could have given. No, I mean, no, I, first I had to do that. Well, play back the tape of what she said, and I'll just. No, um. It's a, I mean, it's. Okay, it's a heavy question. Um, there, there, there. There's something musical about it because. It has to do with patterns of meaning that develop over time. Um, there's, there's stuff for me about reading um, 
that isn't like like looking at a piece of art because there I choose how long I look and what I look at and I, I'm being directed through a linear flow of time but in a piece of music or in a movie that flow is directed for me I've really got no choice but to follow it whereas books it's it's weird I'm I'm moving through time through this thing but I can also I don't know whether you do it or not but when I if I've read a paragraph I just li I like a lot I go back and I read it over again so so I am I'm trapped in time but I've got more mobility within that time um, and then I think um, uh, you know I've, there's other there's other writers I've talked to about this and most of us who end up doing this like to read as kids probably for the same reason you did there's um, um, I'm trying to think of a way to say it where it doesn't just sound stupid and simple. But it, it, it goes without saying that um, there are four of us in this room. I'm sure, I'm sure we all seem fairly pleasant. We don't, there, there, there are big limits on what we'll ever know about each other. I, like, I don't know what's in your mind right now. I, God knows I don't know what's in his mind right now. There, there, is a, there is a way for me, and I'm not really talking, I'm talking more as a reader, that when I'm reading something that's good and that's real, I'm, I'm able to jump over, I'm able, I'm, over to kind of, I'm able to kind of jump over that wall of self and inhabit somebody else in a way that I can't, you know, that we can't in regular life um, but and 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 when I do inhabit that other person very often what they're thinking or saying or feeling are things very much very much the way I do but I'm scared there's something wrong with me that I do and nobody else does there's a tremendous reassurance about that kind of uh, communion and empathy um, and then it gets more complicated because I'm also getting access to the mind of the author in a way that I mean, we don't have access to each other talking this way and stuff, and so there, there is. It's um, most mo most of most of the friends I've got, and most of my friends don't like to read. Most of the friends I've got who don't like to read find it a boring and b just kind of lonely and slow. And I just don't get it because I'm um, watching television for me. Although it's easier, it's much lonelier. You know, watching flat images on a flat screen, doing interesting things, and often they're very easy to look at. Um, is very different from knowing what it's like to be inside somebody else's skin or knowing what it's like to be able to spend two hours with an author who somehow can make me feel like I know what it is. I mean, it just seems like a form of magic to me. And is it also comfort? There was... I can't remember which American writer it was who re I heard him speak and he said uh, that his job is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable, and, and so the there is something there's something comforting there's something comforting about being able to inhabit somebody else, but there's so, something also very uncomfortable about it because usually usually the experiences that person is having are just the ones that I don't like or that I haven't worked out, and it and it it, it seems to me that the biggest split isn't between music and literature or music and sculpture or whatever there there are forms of art that offer us escapes from ourselves and our daily lives and and I think that's fine in small doses and then there are kinds of art that offer us more sort of confrontation with our own lives and I I don't think it's surprising that there isn't as much demand or as much money in the latter 
um, because it's it's more difficult and less pleasant sometimes, and it takes skill and education to to get good enough at reading or listening to be able to derive pleasure from it. It's a very there's class stuff involved here that's that gets very tricky, um, but I, but but I think it's worthwhile. Um, I think reading and writing are both worthwhile. That's very profound. Okay. Did good for a while in the middle there. That that was lucid. All I did was parrot back what you said, no, no, but no. I took like ten times as long. No, that's and I no. I did this a lot more. So. <laughs> Boy, is it hot in here now. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> um, so, um, we are right in, into something that I actually have. Do you want me to get you some little bit of water or something? No, I'm fine. I'll just be, I'll just be sweating here in my chair. Like, it's fine. You know, the, Not a problem. Like the typical American? Yes, the sweaty American. I'm, I'm proud to sweat on behalf of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are just in the middle of a question that I put on this paper, um, which was um, somehow faxed or emailed to you. So and which I received. <laughs> that's good to know. Um, the fear of the writer that his work and his persona somehow made banal and be flattened and abused as soon as the media. I don't recall that. Where's that written down there? Yeah. Banal. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's banalized. Uh, okay. I think that I made this word up. I How interesting. See, mine stopped here. Really? Yeah, there wasn't any of this stuff. Oh, my God. No, it's fine. <laughs> so it'll all be a step. So, 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 we're n so we're talking about, like, the, the marketing of writing stuff? No, but, I mean, it's... Uh, the, the fear of the writer that his work and his persona are somehow made into a banal, not, not only by promoting, yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it belongs to promoting. The work and the, the work and his persona are the same thing? No, no, no. Of but they're both, they're both made? Yeah, but as, as, when you, you know, when you, you are out there for the media, and what happens then? I see a paradox here. I'm going to talk about the difficulties of, of having to deal with the media, but I'm talking to the media. Sure. Right. I mean, See, I'll pretend I'm talking to you, but when the shows, it's you're going to have this face, sweaty face, on camera, talking about how difficult it is as a writer to be on camera. In which case, if I were the viewer, I would go, "So why is the son of a bitch on camera?" So how do you suggest I handle this? Yeah, no, it's a paradox, but at the same time, I think it's it's very, I mean, it's it's a legitimate fear to have. So. I think about these things all the time. I think, well, I, I like literature, but at the same time, why am I doing this, and how am I doing this, and how am I trying to, how can I try to preserve these things? So, you know, it's a paradox for me, too. So that's, so for this reason, I think it's some, something you can think about. Sure. Well, there are a number of trade-offs. Um, there, there, in the, in the United States, there's another division between corporate publishers and nonprofit publishers, who are often very small and do a lot of poetry and avant-garde fiction. If, if, if you are lucky, these are scare quotes, if you are lucky enough to be published by a corporate publisher, um, you, get, you, get more ex you get more exposure, you get, um, 
you get reviewed in the New York Times instead of just in your local paper. You get translated into other languages and target. Um, but um, literary stuff loses money for corporate publishers almost all the time. And one of the ways they try to keep from losing money is marketing the stuff. And for reasons that that everyone has tried to explain to me, but I, I still don't understand it, having the author go around and talk and read, the thing they most like to do is send you to a bookstore. And you give a reading at a bookstore, and there's maybe 200 people there. But while you're in town to do the reading for the bookstore, you talk to the local newspaper, and you maybe do something like this. And that it generates, like, advertising for the book. Um, my personal my problems with it are the following. Um, my, my stuff I don't feel like is, read, is meant to be read out loud. There isn't really, it's not, it's not supposed to live on the breath. It, there isn't enough punctuation in it. And I, I don't feel like I read it out loud very well, A. And B, I find um, most, when, there, when, there's a, when there's a question and answer like you and I are having, although you and I are having a much more lengthy one, but, but particularly one with like a newspaper reporter or a question and answer at the end of a reading. If the question, the question is easy to answer if it's dull or stupid. The good questions are questions that can't be answered in a Q&A format, right? Um, they're ones what you would have to sit down with a pot of tea or a pot of coffee and, and they're, they're, they're things that can be answered only in conversation between two people. And so I always feel vaguely um, fraudulent. Or there, there's a thing about doing this where you're helping me. We're pretending we're having a conversation. And I'm also pretending that, I, that there aren't cameras all over here. But in fact, this is all on TV. And I know that I'm supposed to ignore. Like, I'm not supposed to look at the camera because that doesn't make for a good interview. But, but trust me, when you're sitting when I'm sitting here, the camera is the thing I really see. It's all very strange. And so, so why do I do it at all? Um, I, make, I make a variety of deals, um, and I do a few things. Um, I, know some, I know some writers who, who, who like this, and there are things about it that are, I mean, it's very flattering. I mean, you guys came. Um, uh, um, it makes me nervous, and it makes me it makes me self-conscious to try to talk about stuff that I find almost impossible to talk about. Or else just to go, so how long are you in town? Oh, three days, you know. Um, um, but uh, I owe, I, I have an agent whom I owe 25,000 favors to who's done all these nice things. For me. And it's, it's also exciting for a writer to get his work published in another country, so she says. Um, the, this, this, this German publisher is really good, and this is a, these. Um, they're going to publish the book well, even though I don't think my English can really be translated into German um, because it's very idiomatic. Oh, they're they're going to publish the great advertisement. I'm sure the public. Uh, and and all they all they need is this. They need this one thing from you to help them sell enough books maybe so that they don't lose money on it, it then becomes very difficult to say no. On the other, on the other hand, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's very good. I don't think it's good. Maybe a show like this, there's no such, there's no analog for this in the U.S., but the whole go around and read bookstores thing, it's turning, it's turning 
writers into kind of um, penny ante or cheap versions of of celebrities. The, people aren't usually coming out to hear you read. They're coming out to sort of see what you look like and see whether your voice matches the voice that's in their head when they read. And it's all, none of it's important. And it's icky. I don't know if there's a German translation for icky. But in terms of banal, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, banal to me means general and simplistic and superficial and vapid and um, it, if you do work like this, you pay certain prices. You don't make as much money, not as many people read your stuff, but the people who are reading it and are interested in it, you're pretty sure. Like, the thing that I like about doing stuff is that I'm pretty sure my readers are about as smart as I am. You know? I think if you're somebody like Crichton or, you know, somebody who's like a Harvard MD, but you're writing for a mass audience, things get very strange. You're t um, I don't worry. I don't worry that people who are reading my stuff are misunderstanding it or banalizing it any more than it's already banal. I do worry weirdly about when it's translated into languages that I don't know. I worry that, I mean, I don't know what's in there. You know, I don't know. I, there are so many American idioms in there that I don't know whether they can be translated or not. Um, That's very heavy to you, very hard to translate it actually, but the people who did it and to, who translated your work in German are really people who are very much into it, you know, and oh. I mean, I know some of them. Oh, no, I mean, that's good to hear, and you can understand. Yeah. I can believe you, and still there's this weird, there's this weird, um, because one of the things about, you're probably like this about your work, too, the term is control freak. You know, I, I want to control every single word that's on there, and, um, and so, and so it's just tough. The, the one language that I can read, I read the translation in that language, and it was just so different from anything I meant that I've decided it was even, it was just better, you know, to have it be done in languages I didn't know, so. Yeah. Is that any kind of an answer to the question? Yeah, sure, sure it is, yeah. Um, one thing that also very appealed, very much appealed to me is um, when you, you spoke in an, in an interview, about um, the existential loneliness, you know, of the, of the yeah. I said, I said the word existential yeah. loneliness? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm German and you know, sometimes get things right and uh, wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. But, uh. And that's something, you know, I very much like to hear an author say, because that's, that's the one thing I'm, st I'm, I'm searching, in the things I read, I, I'm searching for this, um, testimonies of, of existential loneliness. So is that something you still relate to? Or? Well, yeah, I, it's, if I understand your question, this is the stuff that we were talking about about two questions ago. There's something painful about being stuck in a body and a consciousness that can't ever accept except through sort of conversation, can't, can't ever be inside anybody else's. And there is, there's a magic about um, Except, see, I don't know that much about music. People who do say that there is a purity with which the composer's emotional state can be felt by the listener that can't be approached by anything else either. There's probably most, most kinds of art have this sort of magical thing of, for a moment, there's a kind of reconciliation and communion between 
between you and me and you and me that isn't possible in any other way. But it's also the sort of thing, it's so weighty and so general that, especially after he used the word pontificate, I, I, oh, I feel... I don't mean I have never heard it. The word pontificate? To speak pompously about very, very complex, abstruse matters. It's a little bit pejorative. But he meant it in a funny way. But it, I mean, it, it's... And, and this is something else about like being an American. When I hear the word existential now, I, like half of me rolls my eyes. Oh, what a bit, you know, the big sexy like philosophical term. And, um, and it becomes hard to speak seriously about it because all I can hear is being, is, is being made fun of for how serious and boring and dull I'm being, if that makes any sense. Good luck editing. Your German accent's much better than mine. How, sh how surprising. Yeah, really. <laughs> Speed. Okay, um, in Germany, when I'm talking about my generation, and it's also about um, well, in my profession, they most of the times they have pretty good educations and all this, and but there's also the feeling not being able to, to, do, to do anything with it, you know? You have pretty good conditions to start with, but then after a while you think, well, um, yeah, what's, what's next and what, are, what am I doing with this? You know, you, you have this, this feeling, maybe it's not, the, not reality, but you have the feeling of not doing anything with your life. And what do you think about that? <laughs> I know that there's a I know that there's a paradox in the U.S. of um, the people who get powerful jobs tend to go to really good schools and in, often in school you study the liberal arts, which is philosophy and classical stuff and languages, and it's all very much about um, the nobility, the human spirit, and broadening the mind. And then from that you go. <laughs> To a, to a specialized school to learn how to sue people or to figure out how to write copy that will make people buy a certain kind of SUV. And yeah, I mean, it's... Um, uh, I, don't know what I, I don't know what I think about it other than that... Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure really that it's, it's ever been all that different because very few, very few of us, and, and there are things about my job I don't like, but this is one of them that I do like, is that I get to use, I get to use pretty much everything I've ever learned or think about. Um, and it, it's actually something that goes a long way when I, bitch and moan about, you know, sometimes it's lonely work and sometimes, you know, you worry that it's not very good. I, I know that there is, at least in America, an entire class of, and now I'm, I'm talking about a very specific class here. I'm talking about upper and upper middle class kids whose parents could afford to send them to, to, to very good schools where they got very good educations, who are often working in jobs that are, that are, that are financially rewarding, but aren't, um, don't have anything to do with what they taught, what they got taught, persuasively taught, was was important and worthwhile in school. And that is, I've never really quite thought of it in that in those stark terms. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? 
what do you, when you guys talk about it, what do you, what do you conclude from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't know already what to conclude from it, you know? But it's, it's, I don't know if this is a phenomenon which is, um, has to do with a certain generation. Or is well, say, say a friend of yours your age who you were in school with who's a businessman now would say that you, you are better off than he because you're at least getting to use a lot of the stuff that you studied in your, in your actual work, right? Right. Um, yeah. I, you know what, we could talk about it for a long time. I don't know that I could say anything about it that would be interesting on camera or from an on-camera point of view, my suspicion is that this has got something to do with um, with something that was explained at, by original sin in Genesis, which is that in part of, as we get older, we have to do things to get money to stay alive, and that there there are things about that 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 often feel very wrong to us, um, so which is probably. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very nice if you cut that out because that just sounds weird. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I get this alienation is just part of it, you know. I mean, in your book, in Infinite Jest, it seems that there also are people who are, you know, they don't want to grow up, and that's just they just feel, you know, somehow alienated from what they started, and they say, well, we have done this and that. And so, I mean, what but, are we supposed I mean, to do? I mean, we're not we're not talking a Marxist kind of alienation. We're not talking about Marxist. we're not talking about alienation from the means of no, production no, no. or anything. Yeah, there is. Um, see, the thing about the thing of it is, though, at least in the U.S., this would be my guess: is that I doubt that somebody who went only to high school, which is the secondary kind of school, and is working in a factory, feels any. I doubt he wakes up and goes, "Well, by gosh, at least I don't have all this." Humanistic learning that I'm not using. Yeah, I don't. I don't imagine he's any more satisfied or um, nourished inside by his job either. What what you and I are part of is a class and generation that can be very articulate about what our complaints are and what we're feeling uneasy about. And I, I think if there's something that that characterizes our generation is not that we've come up with new problems or brilliant new solutions to them, but that we're, we're endlessly verbal about it, and, and which is probably a start, at least being willing to talk about it. But, um, yeah, so. Um, we started out um, talking about all this, this dilemma with, with, um, with wanting to be entertained, and, and, and you just mentioned that there was a, um, this, this big vote in America a couple of days ago, and, and this, also this movement into a certain direction. And you asked me what I thought it was in 10, 20 years from now. So what do you think, do you think will be in maybe a couple of decades from now in America with this whole, I mean, how will this de development go on? I don't know. I don't know, I'm scared. Um. I don't know that I could say anything about the last couple of years that anybody else couldn't say, but um, um, I, when I was young, uh, or younger, I used to, 
there's a way in which in which we in America are comfortable, very comfortable. Um, and I I used to think that um, that some of the some of the political and social answers that that I thought should be um, some of the, some of the political and social corrections that I sh thought should be brought about would happen when there was some sort of cataclysm or misfortune where we weren't as comfortable anymore. Um, the fact the, the fact that that. Um, that, that we now have clear evidence that the way we live and the, um, the relationships we have with various other countries are causing some people to hate us so much that they want to kill us um, and may succeed in killing a great many of us frightens me only because um, Well, when I was growing up, one of the one of the mythological periods of for for us growing up is the Great Depression, Weimar era, um, where the story goes everyone pulled together. There were hard times and no one had enough, but everyone pulled together and everybody. Um, it seems to me now that um, that that the country's reaction to feeling frightened and insecure is to buy sports utility vehicles that are large and massive and tank-like and make individual people feel safer, but also get four miles to the gallon in a country where gasoline is probably one-fifth as expensive as it ought to be. Um, there's, there's a sanity in Europe about gasoline prices and fuel consumption that there isn't here yet, and, and yet are voting for people who are deciding to go over and 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 very possibly kill hundreds of thousands of civilians in order to kill a, a few enemies, and, and none of which is important. But the fact that, that, that no one here is talking about the connection between how we live and what, and what we drive um, and, and the things that are happening, the, the speed with which it's become those bad those bad people, those bad fanatics, they're evil. What they really hate is our freedom and, and our way of life, which is just hard to swallow, right? Like, who hates freedom? Yeah. People hate people, not freedom. Um, I, I, now don't, I, don't, I now don't know what's, what's going to happen. Um, and I'm, I am, as an American, as scared not since I was a little boy and I worried about the U.S. and the Soviet Union having an intercontinental number. Not since that have I been this scared. And what's, and this is totally personally, but I'm more scared of us than I am of anybody else. And that, that's, that's a bleak place to be. I'm not sure how I feel about, well, you're going to use it if you want. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think this is an evil country. I don't think American people are evil. I think we've had it very... I think we've had it very easy materially for a long time, and we've gotten very little help in understanding things that are important besides being comfortable. And I, I don't think anybody knows how we will react if things get really hard here. And, and um, the fact that we're strong militarily and economically is a good thing, but it's also a frightening thing. To, to, to some of us as Americans. So. So, uh, 
and what kind of yeah, switches already almost now now I probably well luckily yeah not a lot of Americans will see this syndrome. So what I, I mean are there any any means of rebellion? Um, sure. So what would it be? Uh, well there 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 are people doing it all over the place. Um, I don't know about people rappelling down buildings and getting tear gassed and stuff. It, it, um, the people I know who are rebelling meaningfully, you know, don't don't buy a lot of stuff and uh, um, and don't don't get their view of the world from television and um, are willing to spend four or five hours researching an election rather than going by commercials and um, the thing about it is is that in the, in America we think of rebellion as this very sexy thing and that it involves you know action and force and and looks good and my, my guess is the forms of rebellion that will end up changing anything meaningfully here will be very quiet and very individual and uh, and probably not not all that interesting to look at from the outside I, I'm now hoping for for less interesting rather than more interesting. Violence is interesting and um, horrible corruption and scandals and rattling sabers and talking about war and demonizing a billion people of a different faith in the world. Those are all interesting. Sitting in a chair and really thinking about what this means and uh, why the fact that what I drive might have something to do with how people in other parts of the world feel about me is, isn't interesting to anybody else. That was very close to the truth, but I don't think it's going to make much sense. And plus, yeah, it's, it's a little. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm not a you know. I'm not a pol politician or a political thinker or whatever. I'm just a scared little American. So, living in California. Just one more question. Do you think there is ever a chance that we um, we might get rid of this this love? It's weird to be saying this on television, but the, see, there's something about the, the um, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. It's not that there's anything wrong with being interested in stuff that's interesting and attractive. What what it seems to me like here is that um, is tele, television and corporate entertainment, in order in order to make because it's so expensive, in order to make money, it has to appeal to a very wide audience, which means it has to find things that a lot of people have in common. And I don't know about you, but here, I think, I think um, what most of us have in common here are our very most base, uninteresting, <laughs> selfish, stupid interests. Um, physical attractiveness, sex, a certain kind of easy humor, vivid spectacle. I mean, that, that stuff that I will immediately look at, and so will you, and so will you, and so will you, right? What, so so it's, in our, it's in our very most base and kind of childish interests that we are a mass. The, the things that make us interesting and unique and human, those interests tend to be wildly different between different people. 
Um, so my guess is, um, in terms of in terms of American mass culture as a mass, for things to get significantly different, what it's going to really what it's going to involve is fragmentation in the entertainment industry. When something like what's happened in the American magazine industry, where instead of three or four magazines with millions of, of subscribers, you have thousands of magazines, each with a few thousand. That is, if entertainment can get more niche, N-I-C-H-E is the English word, um, it's possible that that these companies that put the stuff out can stay alive and make money without having to appeal to 10, 20 million people. Because I, I, don't, I don't think it's evil, I think it's just the way that it works. The only way to get 10 or 20 million people all interested in the same thing is to pitch your appeal very, very low. Because maybe you're not interested in any of the things that I named, you know, just immediately, but I am. I'm no different than anybody else, I'm not really. Uh, there are a few people who aren't interested in it at all, but I am. Okay.